If somebody came up to you and asked you to explain Christianity, if you could explain Easter, if you could explain the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and what took place during that three-day period, you would be describing Christianity. Now, the Pharisees knew the Scriptures. They knew them backward and forward, but they were so eager to get Jesus crucified. They were so eager to get Him out of the way that everything they did leading up to the crucifixion was fulfilling the very prophetic Scriptures concerning the coming Messiah that was in their own biblical scrolls. Now, Satan is so stupid. I've thought so many times. They knew the Scriptures, and yet what they were doing, they themselves were fulfilling those very scriptures with every step that they took. Now, I want us to look at one portion of those prophetic scriptures written hundreds of years before it happened, but it's as though it were written by a newspaper reporter out on the streets as he watched it happening. Now, there are so many, many prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilling the death, burial, and resurrection, but we're just going to read one portion out of Isaiah 53. So if you'll turn there. Now, I want you to take special note. We're going to read through most of this chapter, and then we're going to go into the New Testament and see the fulfillment. Now, the entire chapter 53 of Isaiah is a prophecy concerning just the crucifixion. Now, it's not a picture of his entire earthly ministry. It's just the culmination of his ministry. It's the part of his ministry that sets it apart from every other religion in the world. Now, I'm going to read one verse out of Isaiah 52. It's verse 14. It's talking about Christ on the cross, and it says, So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now this is on the cross. When he took the sin and the sickness of the entire world, his appearance was marred more than any man. Didn't say it was marred as other men that have been crucified. Marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Okay, in Isaiah 53, look at verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected and forsaken of men. Okay, this is talking about the Messiah to come, that he would be despised, rejected, and forsaken of men. Okay, the religious leaders despised him. They hated him. He was rejected. His own people, his own family rejected him. He was forsaken. The week before, they were laying palm leaves out. They were singing Hosanna, and they wanted to crown him king. And now one week later, they've forsaken him, and they're demanding that he be crucified. Look at the first part of verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Okay, if you look over in the margin, that word griefs in the Hebrew means sickness, and the word sorrows means diseases and pains. Now, we also know that because Matthew 8, verse 17 is quoting this scripture in Isaiah 53. And Matthew 8, 17 very plainly says, Jesus bore our sickness and he carried away our diseases. Now, I want you to notice the word surely in verse 4. Now, that word surely also means certainly or firmly. So, certainly, firmly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus bore our sicknesses and he carried away our diseases. Now, years ago, Jack and I took the children to Uvalde, and we camped out at this beautiful state park, and right behind the camp was a mountain, a tall mountain. So we decided that we were going to go up that mountain the next day. Now, Bill was just a little tight, and it wasn't long until he was just worn out. So I picked him up, and I decided that I would carry him because I knew we'd never make it to the top if he was walking. But as I was carrying him, he was a heavy load. 
And in a few minutes, Jack looked over and he saw that I was struggling under that heavy load. So he took Bill and he carried him for me. Now, I want you to notice in this verse four that it says that Jesus carried our sicknesses and diseases. Well, after Jack took Bill and carried him, then I wasn't carrying the load. That load was off of me. As long as Jack was carrying him, I was released from the load. Now, I could have reached over at any time and I could have taken him back and I could have carried him. But I would have been carrying a heavy load that I didn't need to carry because Jack was willing to carry him for me. Okay, I want you to realize that it was prophesied that Jesus was going to carry our sicknesses and our diseases. Now, there's times when we're still carrying our sicknesses and we're still carrying our diseases. But when we do that, it's because we're not appropriating this part of the atonement. We're not unloading the, that burden of sickness over on Him by faith. Now, the Bible tells us that He's already carried it for us. So there's no need for us to bear something that He's already borne. And look at the last part of verse 4. It says, Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, God was saying that in our ignorance, that when we looked at the cross, the people thought that Jesus was being punished by God for some crime that he had committed. Verse five, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him and by his scourging were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to go his own way, and we have. We've done our own thing. We've gone our own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. I want you to take special note of verse 7. He didn't say a word. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living by the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? God said he was cut off out of the land of the living. He died, in other words, and the people who watched that had no idea that he was doing it for them, that the stroke belonged to them, but yet he was taking it for them. His grave was assigned with wicked men, he was among all the thieves, yet he was with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Okay, look over in the margin again. That word grief means he made him sick. So actually what this is saying, God was pleased to crush him and to make him sick. Why was the Lord pleased to crush him and make him sick? because that was the only way for the curse to be removed from us. Sickness came in as a result of sin, and Jesus was made to bear and carry away our sicknesses just as much as he was made to be sin on our behalf. Now, when this becomes a reality on the inside of us, we're going to begin to walk free of some things that we've been plagued with all of our life. Now, later, take Isaiah 53 and begin to just let it minister to you. Take Matthew 8, 17, Psalm 103, and Psalm 91, and read them all together and allow it to minister to you until you know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that healing was a part of the atonement. Okay, look on down in verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, 
He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And what does it say in Romans? It says, one dies so that all may live. Verse 12, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He allowed himself to be poured out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Okay, I want you to turn now to Luke chapter 18 and I want us to see the fulfillment. I wish we had time to look up all the prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament concerning the death and burial and resurrection. But this is going to give us a pretty thorough look. Okay, in Luke 18 verse 31, it says, And Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. Now the reason he said we're going to Jerusalem is because he knew that that's where this had to take place. He knew it was time. And he knew that he had to be in Jerusalem. And he said all things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and mistreated and spat upon. Okay, these things hadn't happened yet. But Jesus said these things are all going to happen. And after they have scourged him, so he knew that he was going to be scourged, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Okay, I want you to turn now to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said, For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Okay, he's quoting the scripture directly out of Isaiah 53. And he's saying, after all these years, that prophecy back there in Isaiah has reached its fulfillment. He said, finally, the time of fulfillment has come. Now, Jesus was not half man and half God. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. Now, he never changed his deity. He simply emptied himself, according to Philippians, so that he could become a man, so that he could take on humanity and take on a human body. And when he took on a human body, he took on the, all the limitations of that body. Now, the beginning of the humanity of Jesus started at the conception in his mother's womb. It didn't start at the birth. It started at the conception. Now, the birth was not a miracle. It was like any other birth in the natural. The miracle had taken place back at the time of conception. And we have to understand that it was a miracle conception for these things that took place on the cross to, to mean anything to us. So let's think about the natural laws for just a moment. When we understand natural laws, it's going to give us insight into miracles. See, God made this world and he set some natural laws into being. Now the laws that he put into force, they're miraculous to our natural way of thinking, but they're not miracles. Gravity is miraculous. But it's not a miracle. It's a law. It's a law of gravity. It's set in motion by God to work the same way every single time. Have you ever thought about how miraculous it is when you walk out of your house and you stick to the earth's surface instead of flying off somewhere? That's pretty miraculous. But it's not a miracle. It's what's called a natural law of God. Now scientists can discover these natural laws and they can become very familiar with them because these laws are so dependable. But scientists didn't come up with these laws. God did. Now, another natural law is that in a woman's body, thousands of eggs are produced. Now, there's going to be approximately 150 to 175 of those eggs that are going to mature during her lifetime. 
And when a sperm contacts one of those mature eggs, within six hours, it's going to divide in two, and then it's going to divide in four and into eight, and it's going to go on until two to the 32nd power. Now, I want you to see how miraculous that is. If you started at age 12 and you tried to write that number, and if you wrote continuously from age 12 until age 90, you still couldn't write fast enough to write that number. Now that's miraculous, but it's not a miracle. It happens every day. That's a law that God put into being, and it goes on continually in a woman's body. You can count on it. Okay, let me tell you what a miracle is. A miracle is when God changes one of his natural laws that he's put into being. Now that's why it's called supernatural. It supersedes the natural. Now a good example of that is in the Old Testament when God had the sun stand still so that Joshua would be able to fight his battle in daylight hours. A natural law was changed. A natural law was superseded. Now in the conception of Jesus, God changed one of his natural laws. No sperm of a man touched the egg in Mary's womb. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that touched that egg. And when the Holy Spirit touched the egg, it began to divide in two and into four and so on. And that's what Luke 1 verse 35 was explaining. This supernatural happening. The angel said to Mary, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, he said, the holy offspring will be the Son of God. See, he was saying the power of the Holy Spirit is going to touch that egg in your body. Now, that was the beginning of the humanity of Jesus. Now, that wasn't the beginning of Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning with his Father, but it was the beginning of the humanity of Jesus. He humbled himself, took on the form of a man to receive a body, a physical body. So there was a miracle that took place in the conception, but from there, the pregnancy was normal. Mary carried him in her womb the, the normal nine months because the Bible says that when the time of fulfillment came, she brought forth her firstborn son. Now, some people think that the cross experience was not as much agony for Jesus because he was God. But see, that's not true. When he took on a human body, he took on all the limitations of that human body. He got tired and he had to rest. He got hungry and thirsty and he had to eat and he had to drink. He had to study and learn. There was no instant knowledge. That's why at age 12, he was in the temple asking all kinds of questions to the scribes and to the priests. Now, the Bible says that he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. In other words, he grew in height. He grew in the knowledge and in the favor of God and man. See, he had a human body and he had limitations to that body. And he did that on purpose. He emptied himself so that he could take on this human body. Now, the only difference was that he was born sinless. Now, when we're born, we have a sin nature, and that's why the virgin birth is so important. And that's why Satan fights it so hard, because without the virgin birth, there would be no Christianity. God made it possible for Jesus to be born without sin by changing a natural law at conception. God brought about a miracle. Remember what a miracle is. It's when a natural law is overstepped, when it's bystepped. Now, I went on a TBN tour to the Holy Lands with Paul Crouch. And while we were over there, Paul Crouch made this statement, and I'm going to be quoting from him. He said, There was no way for the egg in Mary's womb to have had one drop of human blood in it if she had never known a man. He said, The human egg, the fetus, begins to develop its own blood, but only after it's been fertilized by a man. 
He says the mother doesn't give her blood to the baby. Now Mary had an egg which produced the body, but without a male sperm, there would be no blood for that body. The mother's blood comes to the placenta and it bathes the placenta, washes over the placenta, but the mother's blood doesn't actually go into the egg. It's through a process of osmosis that the nutrients and the oxygen goes into the baby's bloodstream. But the mother's blood stops there at the placenta. In other words, the baby's blood, which in Jesus' case was entirely his own, did not come from Mary. And since Mary was a virgin, there was only one place where that blood could have come from. That blood system came from God when the Holy Spirit came upon her and touched the egg and life came into it. You know, Jesus said, a body thou hast prepared for me. Doesn't say anything about the blood. God provided that. But Leviticus 17 verse 11 tells us that the life of this physical body comes through the blood. The life is in the blood. Now we know that because you can take a very healthy, vivacious person and if you cut an artery and all the blood drains out, what happens? You're dead. Okay, life goes out with the blood. The life for this physical body flows through the blood system. And so when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and touched that egg, He brought life into it. He brought blood into it. The Holy Spirit imparted life. Life's in the blood. And that's why Jesus could be born sinless. See, the curse of death had been passed down from the time of Adam through the bloodline. Therefore, we are automatically born with a sinful nature. And if Jesus had been from the man's bloodline, then He would have had a sinful nature too. Therefore, He couldn't have been our substitute on the cross. He couldn't have taken our penalty for sin. He would have just been paying for His own sin. He would have just been dying the martyr's death. But since He was born sinless and had never sinned while He was walking on this earth, then He could die in our place and He could take our penalty. Now, He didn't use His power as God to override His humanity. And that's why He continually referred to Himself as the Son of Man. I used to think, Lord, why does it continually say in the Gospels, the Son of Man? Why doesn't it say the Son of God? Well, that's because He wanted us to know that every single thing He did was done in His humanity. Now, in Hebrews 4, verse 15, it tells us that He was tempted in all ways like as we, yet He never sinned. He went to God exactly the same way in which we go to God. He fellowshiped with God through the Spirit through the Word of God. He had to accept the Word of God by faith, just exactly like we accept the Word of God. And he came to understand his mission, and he came to understand his calling, just exactly like we understand our calling. We have to do it by faith. We hear the Holy Spirit and we accept it by faith. He had the same proof that he was the Son of God that we have. The Word of God and, and the Holy Spirit bearing witness to his Spirit, and the Holy Spirit crying out of his Spirit, Abba, Father. But see, the difference was is that he never doubted. His faith was steadfast and he never sinned. Now he had to go to the cross and to the grave in faith that God would raise him from the dead on the third day. He had to trust in those prophetic scriptures and he had to trust in what the Holy Spirit was telling him. Now we have to understand all of this before we're going to get the full impact of the crucifixion. Okay, three years of his ministry have passed and he's eaten the Passover feast with his disciples and he knows his mission. He knows that beyond a shadow of a doubt. He's fully human with the emotions and with the knowledge of what's about to happen and he knows that the decision that lies ahead is his to make. 
Okay, I want us to look at the scriptural account. I want you to look at Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony. Sometimes we just read over that, but when it says that Christ was in agony, he was in agony. And he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Sometimes we don't realize that where it says he was in agony, this was prophesied. If you'll remember what we read a while ago in Isaiah 53, verse 11, it says he was in the anguish of his soul, so much so that he sweat drops of blood. Now, so often we take this text so casually, but I studied the research that was done by Dr. David Donovan. He's a medical surgeon, and he did an in-depth study on the crucifixion of Jesus. So I'm going to relate to you some of his findings. He said that it's possible for someone to be in such severe pain that their blood vessels actually rupture. And he said that when this happens, then the blood drains from the brain and it drains from the heart into the skin. Now, if it's severe, then there's not enough blood in the brain and in the heart to sustain the circulation, so that person will either faint or they'll go into shock. He said many times when a person's gone through surgery and you know that they haven't lost any blood but their blood pressure is dropping, he says you have to give them a shot of morphine and then when the pain goes down, then the blood pressure will begin to come up. Well, he said that Jesus agonized in the garden and he didn't faint, he didn't go into shock, but the agony kept on and on until the point that his blood vessels dilated to such an extent that they finally ruptured into the sweat glands, and that's why he was able to sweat drops of blood, because he was agonizing to that point. Now that's agony, that's the ultimate of agony. And I used to think that the agony that Jesus went through was because he dreaded the pain of the crucifixion. And crucifixion was horrible, it was indescribable pain. But I believe that the death by crucifixion, as horrible as it was, I believe that that was not what caused the sweat drops of blood. Now, I want us to go through the account and see the horror of what he went through physically during this time, but then I want us to see what I believe caused the real agony in the garden, what finally made him cry out in anguish. Look at verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, a multitude came, and one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. Okay, the next thing that Jesus went through was the pain of betrayal. Now, most of us have never been through honest betrayal. Some of us think we've been betrayed when it's only maybe a misunderstanding or maybe we've just been very disappointed in someone. But seldom have we really experienced true betrayal. Jesus was actually betrayed to the point of death by someone who had been with him for three years, night and day. Okay, look in verse 54. And having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. And Peter was following at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, was looking intently at him and said, This man was with him too. 
But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You're one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Another one of the gospels said that he cursed. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Okay, so next was the pain of denial. Now we've talked many times about how badly Peter must have felt when he realized what he had done. But I want you to think how badly Jesus must have felt. See, this was not just one of the twelve. This was one of the inner circle. This was one of his three best friends. This was one who had been with him up on the Mount of Transfiguration when God spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. See, Peter had shared some of Jesus' innermost thoughts and feelings, yet this dear friend turned and denied him not once, but three times. Now, so far, Jesus has been through the agony in the garden. He's been through the pain of betrayal. He's been through the pain of denial. And now I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And Jesus kept silent. Okay, have you ever really thought about the fact that they orchestrated the trial to the point that they were out trying to find false witnesses, trying to find someone who would testify against him to tell lies? Now that would be devastating. Have you ever had someone just boldly tell a lie against you? You stand there and you just can't imagine someone looking you right in the face or looking somebody else in the face and telling a lie about you, but sometimes that happens. And that's exactly what was happening to Jesus. But what did Jesus do? It says he stood there and he kept totally silent. See, he fulfilled that prophecy that we read in Isaiah 53. He spoke not a word in his defense. He was as a lamb dumb before his shears. And in verse 63, But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you now have heard the blasphemy yourself. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving to die. Okay, have you ever had someone just keep on and on trying to get you to tell the truth and then you finally did tell the truth and they turned and used it on you? Okay, that's exactly what Caiaphas did here. He kept on and on saying, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? And the moment that Jesus said, yes, I am the Christ, then he tears his robes and he begins to cry blasphemy. We don't need any more witnesses. Now, after the high priest got so agitated that he tore his clothing, then the physical abuse really starts. See, when someone is angry enough to rip their clothing, then their temper's out of hand, they're out of control, and anything can happen. And so in verse 67, they began to spit in his face. Now remember, Jesus himself even prophesied that this would happen. They began to spit in his face. They beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. 
There's really nothing more humiliating than have someone slap you in the face with an open hand. And they began to slap him. In verse 68, they said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Okay, he's bloody, he's exhausted. And all of this on top of the ordeal, they're in the garden. And now they're doing all the mocking and the ridicule. And yet he never once says a word in his defense. Okay, look in Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. They've taken him to Pilate. And the governor questioned him saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. Now you're going to see this over and over through the account of the trial, that Jesus never made an answer. Now Pilate didn't want anything to do with Jesus. He was afraid of him. And he doesn't want the responsibility. So Pilate comes up with what he thinks is a very good solution. In verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing for the multitude one prisoner whom they wanted. Okay, now this was a tradition. And so in verse 16, they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now Pilate thinks this is my chance because certainly they're not going to want to have Barabbas released out on the streets of Jerusalem. But in verse 17, when therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning to start, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and be on our children. Well, what a curse they brought on themselves. Down through the centuries, they have been plagued with all kinds of persecution, and they were constantly being called Christ killers, if you'll remember. And it all started right here in verse 25 when they said, Let his blood be on us. Verse 26, Then they released Barabbas, and after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, just because a man was going to be crucified didn't necessarily mean that he had to be scourged. But Pilate ordered him to be scourged, which fulfilled that prophecy over there in Isaiah 53, when it says, by his scourging, we're healed. Now, back in the first century, when a man was scourged, his hands were tied to a post so that his knees couldn't actually touch the ground. And so when he would slump down, all of his weight would hang on his arm sockets. Now the instrument used to do the scourging would have a wooden handle with four six-foot long strips of leather. And at the end of each one of these strips of leather, they would have a link of metal or a link of bone tied into it. And therefore, every time that the lash wrapped around the man's body, it would just literally tear open his flesh. Now they say that the average length of time that a man can stay conscious after the scourging begins is one and a half to two minutes. But the guard was commanded to continue the scourging until no pulse beat was found or until the required number of lashes had been given. Now, I think it's important for 
us to realize that Jesus took this beating. He did it for us. He didn't have to. He took it because he knew that it was by these stripes that we were going to be healed. Okay, look at Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. When we were over in Israel, they had thorn bushes everywhere. And I'm assuming that's probably what they made the crown of thorns out of. But there's some poison in the end of each of these needles that stick in. And that poison just burns and stings and it's very, very painful. And so they put the crown of thorns on his head and then they put a reed in his right hand and they kneeled down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him, they took the reed and they began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off and they put his garments on him and they led him away to crucify him. Now you can see the physical condition of Jesus. He must have been the specimen of hell because he's already been through enough to have killed any normal man. He's had the trauma in the garden with all the loss of blood. And then he's had all of the abuse of the trial and the scourging. And still he's never protested. And in verse 33, when they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, okay, they had taken him outside the city. Now without knowing this, they were fulfilling prophecy again. See, Golgotha was outside of the city limits. And in the Old Testament, they would take a scapegoat and the priest would symbolically put the sins of the people on that scapegoat every year, and then they would take the scapegoat outside of the city limits and kill the goat. That's where the term scapegoat comes from, someone who takes the punishment for someone else. And they would always take that scapegoat outside the city limits. So it's interesting here that Golgotha was outside of the city limits. Jesus was indeed our scapegoat. Now the Romans had been the one to, ones to come up with crucifixion because the other means of capital punishment up until that time didn't take long enough. And so crucifixion was a very slow death involving a lot of agony. Two soldiers were assigned to each person to be crucified and they would use eight inch long spikes and they would drive them into the hand right about the wrist area. Now, one of the most painful parts of the crucifixion was where they would place both feet together, one on top of the other, and nail one of those spikes through both of the feet into the cross. This was a very painful process, and yet he still made no protest. Now, Luke even records that while he was on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But he makes no protest for himself. Yet I want you to look at the hardness of the people. In verse 39... It says, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Now in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God, let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also who were being crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. Now, even if they weren't willing to receive him, can you imagine being so cold-hearted that when you saw someone in that kind of agony that you would mock them and hurl more abuse? It's hard for our mind to conceive of that kind of hardness. 
Now, according to Dr. Donovan, who did this in-depth study of the crucifixion, it was more comfortable to hang on the nails that were in the hand than to put weight on the feet. And when they would hang, the muscles that allow you to breathe out are paralyzed. Now, you can breathe air in, but you can't breathe it out. So they would have to push up on their feet to be able to get the air out of their lungs. And he said that that was a very, very painful thing. Now, that's why the soldiers would break their legs when they wanted them to die more quickly. With their legs broken, they wouldn't be able to push up and get the air out of their lungs. Now, at verse 45, Jesus has been on the cross approximately three hours. Now, up to this point, he's not complained, he has not protested, he's not cried out in pain. In spite of everything that's happened to him, he's not made any kind of protest. Now, that's very important for us to take note of. And in verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, it was dark. Now, I'm going to say this again because it's important. In spite of the physical and mental and emotional abuse, up to this point, he's not complained, he's not uttered one thing in his defense. That's because the physical agony, I believe, was not what he was dreading when he was in the garden, even though it was horrible beyond human comprehension. But what he was dreading in the garden that brought sweat drops of blood was what was going to take place on the cross from noon until 3 o'clock in the darkness. Now, he hadn't uttered a complaint in that first three hours, but after the third hour of the three hours in darkness, for the first time, we see that he cries out. Now, this is significant. I want you to look in verse 46. It was about the ninth hour, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Okay, for the very first time, he cries out in agony and he cries out in pain. Now see, he foreknew ahead of time from the scriptures and from communing with the Father and the Holy Spirit that the sins of the entire world would be put on him. And he also knew that the result, the consequences of those sins, sickness and disease, would be carried by him at this point on the cross. That's why it tells us in Isaiah 53, 6 that all we like sheep had gone astray, we've done our own thing, and all of that sin was placed on him. Now that's why his appearance was marred more than any man, more than the sons of men. But up to this point, he has never been separated from the Father. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and he knew that when he did it, that he would literally become a curse for the entire world. And he knew that when he became a curse, he would be separated from his father. Now that was what he was dreading. He dreaded the separation from his father because there is more mental agony and more mental torment in, in our being separated from God than there is in anything else in this world. And he had never been separated from the father. He had been with his father from the beginning, but God cannot come in contact with sin. We see a type and shadow of that in the Old Testament when they were moving the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the men reached up to steady the Ark. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was a manifestation of God's presence. So when he touched that Ark, it was like touching God and he died. That's because sinful flesh can't come in contact with God. Now, when sin came into Jesus' body, God literally had to turn his back on him and it became dark. And at that moment, 
Jesus was separated from his father. He was cut off from his presence for the very, very first time. He was literally cut off from the presence of God so that we could come into God's presence at will. Now, this was the agony. This was the mental torment, and this was the indescribable pain that Jesus dreaded. See, it wasn't the physical pain, even though that was horrible beyond words. It was not the physical abuse. It wasn't the mental and the emotional abuse. What he dreaded was the separation from his father. Now, I'm going to give you a personal example. When I was going through those years of being sick, I was not in any kind of physical pain. But the mental pain that I felt constantly was almost indescribable. I would just cry uncontrollably because I felt like I was completely alienated from God. I felt like I was completely separated from God. Now, what had brought this on was the fact that I had doubted the existence of God and I had turned my back on God and I had walked away emotionally and, and mentally. And when I did, I became separated from my father by my own choice. And that mental agony and that mental torment that I went through is something that I can't even describe. I can't even explain it in words. I would dread waking up in the morning because I thought I couldn't bear the mental torment through the day. And I dread going to bed at nights because I dreaded the nightmares. Now, the only thing that kept me from considering suicide was the thought that I might have to go through this torment eternally. And so I lived in that mental agony until the day that I finally came and said, God, I don't even know if you're still there, but if you're there, find me and bring me back to you. And God is so faithful. Anytime we'll make that choice, he's so faithful. And all of a sudden, that separation began leaving and that peace began coming back. Now, that's the agony that Jesus was expressing when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was an agony that he could hardly bear because it's an agony that is indescribable. It was that agony of separation that finally made him cry out for the very first time. Now, if we don't hear anything else today, I want us to see that the most precious thing that Jesus did for us on Calvary was the fact that he took our separation so that we never have to be separated from the Father. He bore that for us. You know, when the scriptures talk about the wailing and gnashing of teeth in hell, I do not believe that that's from physical pain. I believe that when it talks about the wailing and the gnashing of teeth, that that's talking about the torment and the agony of being eternally separated from the Father. Now that was the price that Jesus paid for us. And he dreaded it, he agonized over it enough to sweat drops of blood. He who knew no sin was made to be sin and to take that separation that sin causes. Now, no wonder the world became dark. The light of the world took the darkness of our sin, and there was no light then to light the world. Now, this truth has to become more than just a doctrine. You know, it'd be really easy for us to say, oh, praise God, Jesus bore my separation from the Father. But that's not good enough. We have to come to the place of realizing the agony that he endured to keep us from having to endure that agony. That needs to become a reality on the inside of us, that he took the agony and the torment so that we never have to be separated from the Father because of our sin. See, Jesus knew that it was his decision whether or not he would stay on the cross and whether or not he would finish it. And in Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus said to Pilate, Do you not know that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, he was saying, I could call down 10,000 angels. He knew he could do that, even after he was on the cross. And I want you to think about the worst agony you've ever experienced. 
at the moment that you were going through it, if you could have gotten out of it, then I think that the temptation would probably have been overwhelming to say, yes, Lord, I want out. Well, I think it's important for us to realize that Christ was not forced to stay on that cross. He was not murdered. He laid his life down willfully for us. Now, he could have backed out at any moment. And that's why in John 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus told Pilate, he says, I have permission from my father to quit at any time. And even after he was put on the cross, he had permission, he could have quit. Now, I'm sure that as a man, I'm sure there were some doubt thoughts that tried to come when this separation from the father came, but he did it for us. But can you even imagine what that agony must have been like for the father? I've thought so many times what it would be like for God to hear his son crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you just even imagine the agony of God? My mind can't conceive of that kind of love. And in Isaiah 53 verse 10, we read that it was the Father's will to crush him and to make him sick. And the reason is because the Lord knew that that was the only thing that would buy redemption for the entire creation. He knew that that was the only way for the law to be fulfilled and for sin to be rectified and for eternal reconciliation to be made. For God so loved the world that he allowed his son to stay on the cross. And then finally, after three hours, Jesus said it's finished and he yielded up the spirit. Now in Matthew 27 verse 51, it said at that moment the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. No longer did sin separate us from the Holy of Holies. No longer could it separate us from God. We can now enter, not as the priest did in the Old Testament, covered by the blood of animals, but now we can enter cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And we can go into the presence of God at any moment of any day because Jesus paid that price and he took it all. He took our sin, he took our sickness, and he took our separation. And then he went into the compartment of hell called paradise and it says that he led out a host of captives and gave gifts to men, according to Ephesians 4, verse 8 and 9. And then the Bible tells us that God did not allow his righteous one to see corruption. In other words, he didn't allow his physical body to decay, but he brought him forth from the grave and he brought him forth victoriously. And now we serve not a dead hero, but we serve a risen Savior and he's alive evermore. And that's why we're able to sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And then Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples. And after Thomas touched the nail prints in his hands and declared, you're my Lord and you're my God, what did Jesus say? He said, because you've seen, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. And he was talking about you and talking about me. See, we serve a risen Savior, and he truly is in the world today. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not be separated but shall live in the presence of God forever. Oh, Father, you are so good. Lord, I thank you that you loved us enough to allow Jesus to stay on the cross. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you loved us enough to take the pain and the agony, not only the physical pain, but most of all the pain and the agony of being separated from the Father. Father, I thank you that we never have to face separation from you. We never have to even experience that, that we can go freely and openly into your presence any moment of any day or night. Father, thank you for that in Jesus' name.